So when I was in seminary, we had to take a course on contextual ministry. And it was one of the final courses that you would take. Uh, and basically, contextual ministry meant that we got to take a trip. We got to go someplace to see how ministry was done in that particular place. And that particular semester, we had three choices. The first choice was to go to Israel, to Jerusalem. The second choice was to go to, to Greece and follow the, the trail of, of Paul. And then the third choice was to go to Cuba. I'd like to tell you that there were very strong spiritual, religious reasons in how I made my decision. But the Caribbean in January was much too appealing. And so that's where I went. I went to Cuba, not knowing what to expect. I figured at some point I'll go to Israel. I can go to Greece, but I'll probably never get another opportunity to go to Cuba. It's close by, the weather's nice, let's go. And so we did, I went, that's the, the, the trip I chose. And I have to say that it was one of the most transformational experiences in my life. To arrive in Havana is like arriving in the 1950s, right? The vehicles, the pictures that you see are accurate. And everything has been restored or fixed up or tried to be fixed up as much as possible. To see the buildings and the deterioration that has occurred over the years was alarming. I mean, these are buildings that people are inhabiting that look, they're, they're about to fall down. To walk into the stores and to see barren shelves as a norm was shocking. In fact, to own or to have in your possession beef, something we take for granted, is against the law. And so I was in shock as I walked the streets of Havana, as I got to meet the people, and as I got to worship with the growing Methodist church in Cuba. And when I say growing, I mean exploding at its seams. So much so that they're trying to send evangelists to the United States because we've, we've gone astray in their eyes. But the thing that really took me by surprise, the thing that really overwhelmed me and still overwhelms me today is the hospitality that we were received with by this very humble people that didn't have much, but wanted to give it all in hospitality to their guest. Now, there was a dilemma. The dilemma is, do you take what, what you know is, is, is something that they've saved months for? Or do you say, no, please don't, and deny the hospitality? 
And our leader said, we have to take the hospitality because it would offend them greatly if we didn't. It overwhelmed me that people with so little material wealth were willing to share. It overwhelmed me even more when I recognized that most of the reason they have such poor conditions, most of the reasons they have so little is because of the blockade that's still going on, right? I'm not trying to make a political statement here, but, but those are the effects that impact average everyday citizens on this tiny island. But yet, they didn't place any blame they didn't point any fingers. They simply gave what they had. And they gave because they believed that what they read in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, was true. Now, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 2, to welcome the stranger, to welcome the foreigner, because you never know that in doing so, you might be entertaining angels. Now, I by no means am no angel. But they offered that hospitality nonetheless. They saw our arrival on the island as a divine appointment directed by the hand of God. And so they offered radical hospitality. When we look at the passage in chapter 2 of, or, yeah, chapter 2 of, of uh, St. Matthew's Gospel, we see that in reverse from the wise men. Now, wise men is the word we use in English. In Greek, it's magi. And the translation for magi is astrologer. Not astronomer, but astrologer. Somebody who, who looks at the stars. And so these magi, these wise men, these astrologers make their way to Jerusalem from the east, from a foreign land, in search of the Messiah, King of the Jews. And so not knowing the customs of Jerusalem, they go to Herod. Where is the King of the Jews? And Herod's probably thinking, I'm the King of the Jews. What are you asking for? No, the baby that was born. Where is he? We've come from far to pay homage to this new king. And so it's no coincidence, it's not by accident that Matthew records in his gospel the first recording of someone visiting Jesus is not the religious leaders, is not the elites of the Jews, it's not anybody you would think it's going to be, it's foreigners, strangers coming from afar to visit and celebrate the new king. Now, as we go through the Gospels and through the New Testament, we then begin to see how 
Jesus is for everyone. Not just the Jews, right? So here they are, these, these strangers, these visitors from out of town, wanting to pay homage to the baby king, to the Christ child. And they get the information they need and they make their way out of Jerusalem and start heading towards Bethlehem, following the star. And then it's, it stops and it shines down upon where the child is staying. Now this is probably about two years after the birth of Christ. And it stops, and, 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 and they, they know that the baby is inside the house, is what the Scripture says. No longer in the manger, but in a house in Bethlehem. And Scripture tells us that they are overjoyed. What does it mean to be overjoyed? It means to be excited. It means to be happy. It means to be pumped up. It means to say, yeah, we arrived, and he's in there. The king, the new one, the Messiah, we found him. The scripture says they walk into the house and they pay homage to the baby Jesus, and they open up their chest, and they give him gifts of frankincense, gold, and myrrh. They're so excited. Because they had a divine appointment to meet the Christ child. And they did. Not knowing what they were going to find, they traveled from afar to Bethlehem. And then they have a dream and they, they recognize that <laughs> the one we went to go ask is really not a nice guy. He's scheming to try and find out where this child is because he has ulterior motives. And if we read the rest of chapter 2, we find out what those motives are. So that's your homework. Go home and read the rest of chapter 2. Didn't think you were going to get homework on the break, huh? So. But let's compare and contrast what we know about the response of the Magi and the response of Herod. And I'll kind of give you the storyline so you don't have to read chapter 2. No, still read it, still read it. So, Herod, when he finds out from these magi, these wise men, these foreigners, that the new Messiah, the baby, the king has been born, Matthew writes, the first thing he feels is fear. He's frightened. Why would he be frightened of a baby? Well, because Herod is only concerned with one thing at this point, and that's maintaining his position and his power. And if a new rule is coming forth, that might threaten his position and his power. And so he starts to scheme to try and find out where this baby is 
being kept. And it also says that all the people were also frightened. Now, why would all the people be frightened? Because they know Herod. They know what to expect from him. There's nothing that he won't do to maintain his power, his privilege. And they're frightened about what's going to happen. And so then we read, like we said, that the Magi find out in a dream that they can't go back and tell Herod where he's at, and they go a different way. And Herod is livid when he finds out. He's incensed that he's been tricked, tricked by these magi. And so what does Herod do? And this is what frightens the people because they know him. Herod demands and commands that every male child under the age of two be slaughtered. That should take care of it. If we get every male child under the age of two, we'll get that one too. Now, chapter two goes on to say that Joseph has a dream that he has to flee. And so he takes Jesus and Mary and they flee and become refugees and head to Egypt. Now, that's significant. First, that the Messiah that the new king, that the Christ child has to become a refugee is significant. Second, it's significant because they're going into Egypt. Now, if you remember your Bible history, Egypt is where the ancestors of Jesus came out of centuries before, after spending 400 years in bondage. Now, I don't know what the geopolitical situation between Israel and Egypt are at this time, but I would imagine they're still pretty tense. There's still some resentment there. There's still some difficulty. They need to get along and they need to deal and trade with each other, but it's still pretty tense. And so Egypt is not the Caribbean in January. Egypt's a rough place but it's safer than being in Bethlehem. And so that's where Jesus goes to hide out until it's to come back. Now let's compare and contrast. The magi, the strangers, the foreigners, offering radical hospitality to the newborn king overwhelmed and overjoyed at his presence, that they give him presence. Herod, the current king, frightened, paranoid, sick. Jesus is born into a world where the paranoia of the powerful is harmful to children. Did you hear that? Jesus is born into a world where the paranoia of the powerful is harmful to children. And all over the world, that continues to this day. 
See, Herod could have had a divine appointment with the king, but chose to act in fear. Now, what does this mean for each one of us today? I'm certain without a shadow of a doubt that everyone in this room, if I were to ask you, how would you like to respond to Jesus? Like the Magi or like Herod? Each one of us, without a shadow of a doubt, would say, like the Magi, don't insult me. I would never be Herod. Amen to that. But here's the thing I want you to wrestle with. The thing that you take home and deal with, as I will. Oftentimes, our divine appointments are not with Jesus himself, but are with those who have the divine in them. And guess who that is? Each one of us is created in the image of God, and so the divine resides with us, or can reside with us. And so in our interactions with the stranger, with the foreigner, with the other, sometimes as Hebrews reminds us, we're interacting with angels. Always interacting with one created in the image of God. And when we have those divine appointments, are we responding like the Magi, welcoming and excited? Or are we responding like Herod with fear in our hearts? Let's struggle with that. Amen.